Well, hello again. I'm Nurse Mo, and I am very happy that you're back here with me on the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Hopefully, you've got some time set aside. This one's a little bit, well, looking at it, as I wrote my outline, it looks like it's going to be a good deep one. So we'll see how it works out. But if you're heading for a walk or a run, I just wanted to give you a heads up. You might be running or walking for a little bit. We'll see. So we're going to be talking through neuroassessment. And before we dive into that, let's take a quick minute for our listener shout out. This one goes out to Katerina, who says this, Nurse Mo, you're a godsend. You have single-handedly made my nursing school saga more bearable, comprehensible, and sometimes even enjoyable. I have listened to your podcast from the very beginning, along with reading your book before I started nursing school. After two arduous years, I have finally successfully graduated from nursing school and am now studying for the NCLEX. Thank you for everything you do. You're a shining star. Katarina, guess what? I think you're the shining star. So I want to thank you for taking the time to submit that review of the podcast. It absolutely makes my day just as they all do. So Katarina read my book, Nursing School Thrive Guide, which you can get on Amazon. That's Nursing School Thrive Guide. And again, I just want to say thanks to Katerina. You've probably already passed your NCLEX by now. Please reach out, send me an email, and let me know that you are now a licensed nurse. If you'd like to be one of my listener shoutouts, all you got to do, submit a review on Apple Podcasts or write me an email. Let me know how you're doing. Shoot me a message on Facebook, comment on my Facebook page or in my Facebook group, and I'll add you to my list of future listener shout outs. So thanks again, Katerina, and congratulations. So today's topic is neurological assessment, and it's definitely one of the most nuanced and one of the most challenging assessments to master, and there's a lot to it. and. One of the reasons why it can be complex is that there's different kind of different levels of neurological assessment, really, really intense neurological assessment, and then kind of your standard neurological assessment. So we'll be talking a bit about that. One of the neurological assessments, this is just an example of how challenging it can be to master, is that hospitals that are stroke certified, like a stroke certified hospital, require their nurses to get training on using the NIH stroke scale, which is a neurological assessment of stroke symptoms. We have to go through that training every single year and take a test that takes... It takes about an hour and a half to two hours to do this online test where you watch a video of a patient who's going through the NIH and you score them and then you see if your score matches what it should be. So it's very intense and it's just kind of an example of how how difficult neuroassessment can be. So hopefully after listening to this episode, you feel a little more confident about it, whether you're going to be practicing maybe in your skills lab or on a patient at the bedside. So we'll be talking about the basics of neurological assessment, and we're going to start that with the Glasgow Coma Scale. So this is essentially 
kind of your starting point. It's the most basic neurological assessment that you will conduct, and it is looking at the patient's level of consciousness, and we use this Glasgow Coma Scale. So this is a scoring tool that looks at how keenly or how appropriately the patient responds to you in three key areas. So eye-opening is one, verbal response is another, and motor response is the third. So let's look at each of these. So eye response. If the patient opens his eyes spontaneously, he's going to score the maximum number of points, which in this section is four. The eye response section has four possible points. If you have to speak to the patient to get him to open his eyes, that's a score of Three, So they've lost a point because they weren't spontaneously opening their eyes. Well, guess who doesn't spontaneously open their eyes? People who are asleep. So a lot of times your Glasgow will be off by a point or down by a point simply because the patient was asleep. Now, of course, it can also be because they have a decreased level of consciousness. So you have to be very aware of what is going on with the patient. Now, if the patient only opens his eyes to painful stimulation, they're going to lose another point and get a score of two. Some common sources of painful stimulation are performing a sternal rub. That's very irritating. Squeezing the trapezius muscle, that hurts. Don't do it too hard on yourself. And another one that if you don't get a response out of those two, then you could go to pressing a hard object across the nail bed. It's really, really painful, like taking a pen or your pen light um, and pushing it against the nail bed. Try it on yourself, but do it very gently at first even just the smallest amount of pressure, it's really, really painful. So if a patient's not responding to kind of that central painful stimuli with a sternal rub, a trapezius rub, sometimes people will do like an orbital, putting pressure orbitally, that that sounds horrible to me. Um, you can go in with the nail bed pressure and ouch. Okay, so hopefully they open their eyes, but sometimes they don't. So if a patient does not open their eyes to any of these things, then they're only going to get a score of one, okay? So a score of one is if they don't open their eyes to anything, including that very painful stimulation. So that's eye response. Again, it's four possible points. If they open eyes spontaneously, congrats, they get all four points. If you have to speak to them to get them to open their eyes, that is three points. If they respond to your painful stimulation, that's two points. And if they don't respond at all, even with that really painful like nail bed pressure, for example, that is one point. Let's move on to the next section in the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is verbal response. This section has a maximum of five points possible. So for this section, you're going to be score the patient based on basically their verbal response to you. And typically, we're asking them some questions. These questions are asked to elicit the patient's orientation to person, place, and time. So very common things are, what is your name? Where are you right now? What day is it? Usually, I find what day is it or what is the date to be almost too specific, how many times do you have to look at a calendar to know that it is June 
30th, right? Unless it's my birthday or the day before a holiday or something like that, I probably would have to look at a calendar to confidently say the date. I could probably tell you what day of the week it is, but even that working a nurse's schedule, (laughs) I wouldn't even know. So sometimes if a patient doesn't get the date right, but they're close, or they don't get the day right, but they're close, I'll still count that, especially if they've been Maybe I just woke them up in the middle of the night. But technically, knowing what day it is is considered to be oriented to time. So if the patient is oriented to all of these elements, again, they can get a maximum of five points. And if they're confused on any of these elements, like they don't know, they can't tell you that they're in the hospital, for example, they'll look around they're like, I have no idea where I am. What is this place? Okay, they're going to lose a point because they're confused. Sometimes I will ask a patient, like if they're just not answering me or they're so confused about where they are, I'll say, is this place where we are right now a post office or a hospital? And if they say, I don't know, then I know, okay, they are for sure confused, okay? So that's just something that I do if they're really hesitant to even try to guess where they might be. And yes, patients often, when they're confused, don't even know where they are. Now, they can be reoriented, and then when you come back later and ask them where they are, they go, oh, yeah, I'm at the hospital. I'm at Sutter Hospital or Mercy Hospital or UC Davis Hospital, and I've been here for two days, and it is now January 6th. Okay, so they would know those things because you oriented them to those things earlier. But if they're confused, I had a patient once who thought he was at his aunt's house. I mean, he he was unfortunately going through very awful, I, I don't know if it was alcohol withdrawal, I forget, but it was it was something pretty awful. And he was just completely delirious, completely delirious, was convinced that he was at his aunt's house, could not figure out why I was at his aunt's house and was just saying, you know, get out of my aunt's house. I don't know why you're here. Who are you people? So um, he was definitely confused. He got better as everything cleared up, but that that was a tough night for both of us. Absolutely. So if the patient is confused on any element, they don't know their name, they don't know where they are, they don't know the date or the day, that docks them a point. So they would only get four points. If they use inappropriate words that don't really make sense or relate to the question that you're asking, that's a score of three. And then if they just make sounds that don't resemble words, maybe they're just moaning or grunting, that is a score of two. And then if there's no verbal response at all, that's a score of one. Okay, so for the verbal element, five possible points, we're going to ask them orientation questions and see how they respond. The next section in the Glasgow Coma Scale is motor response. We're going to test how the patient responds to us physically. So to test the patient's motor response, you want to see if they can basically obey commands, follow directions, etc. This can be a very structured request like show me two fingers. And that's a great practice just to have kind of some standard commands that you give patients. Show me a thumbs up. Wiggle your toes, right? That could be part of Another assessment, maybe you're assessing for their ability to move their lower half of their body. 
wiggle your toes for me. I do that in the recovery room all the time because it assesses how the patient is waking up from surgery. So if the patient wiggles their toes, I kind of got two, you know, I kind of got two assessments done in one, right? I know that they can move their feet. So they get points for that on my PACU scoring scale, which is the Aldretti, but they're also going to get points for the Glasgow Coma Scale. You can also just simply make a note of the patient's ability to follow commands as you work with them, uh, do other assessments. If you're helping them get up from the bed to the commode and you say, Bob, put your right foot down on the ground. Now stand. And he does those things. Now shuffle walk to the left two steps. And Bob does that. He's following commands, okay? Sometimes when I'm taking a manual blood pressure or I'm putting the blood pressure cuff on a patient, it's kind of hard to kind of get it into a really good position if the patient's not holding their arm in a certain way. So I'll say, can you hold your left arm up just like this? And if they do that, I'm like, great, they're following commands. So I find that approach to work really well for those patients that are alert, not overtly confused. But if I'm ever unsure, I'm definitely going with the show me two fingers kind of route. The NIH scale, for example, assesses this ability by asking the patient to, I believe it's close your eyes very tightly and then open them. And then the other one is to make a fist. So very basic commands. Now, a lot of times people will ask patients who are sedated or neurologically impaired or injured to squeeze their hand as part of their assessment for the Glasgow Coma Scale. Now, this can be an assessment for motor response, but I want you to know that in very neurologically injured individuals, the grasp reflex may actually be what is causing the patient to squeeze your hand. So that's why saying, show me two fingers, is a more appropriate test of a motor response. Now, you do want to ask someone to squeeze your hands when you're testing bilateral grips, but we're talking about for level of consciousness, Glasgow Coma Scale, you want to do something very purposeful like show me two fingers. I was once in a, when I was a student in the ICU for a couple of days, there was a patient that had just been there a really long time. And of course, he's over it, right? He's over the constant neuro assessments. And we would say, show me two fingers, and he would show us one middle finger. Um, but hey, that's a response. And it scored him the points because, you know, when people start getting sassy, I'm like, great, you must be feeling better. Now, if the patient follows your instructions, they're going to get all the points, and it's six possible points with this section for motor response. Now, if they localize to pain, they're going to miss a point and only get five. So a great example of localizing to pain occurs when you take the patient's blood pressure. That cup squeezes and it hurts. So they may reach toward it with their other hand and like try to take the cuff off. Okay, or maybe you had to perform a sternal rub to get their eyes open. But now that they're awake, they reach up towards your hand and want to push your hand away. Okay, so that's localizing to pain. If you're taking the tape off their IV and they try to push your hand away, they're localizing to that painful stimuli. They go right to it and try to make it stop. Now, a patient who withdraws from pain is going to get a score of Four. For example, let's say you performed nail bed pressure, ouch, and they pulled their hand away, okay? Or 
if you were taking off that IV tape and they pulled their hand away, something like that. That would be withdrawing from pain. Again, that nail bed pressure, really painful. Try to get that pain response in other ways before you resort to that. And then we get to kind of the two more ominous motor responses, which is decorticate posturing and decerebrate posturing. So when we look at decorticate posturing, that's an abnormal flexion to pain, okay? So abnormal flexion to pain in decorticate posturing looks like the patient's very stiff. The arms are bent in towards the chest with the fists clenched and the legs are held out straight and the feet typically turn inward. Okay, so that's decorticate posturing. Think of core pulling in towards the core. The arms are bent in, decorticate posturing. This is a sign of significant brain injury, and the patient's only going to get three points on the Glasgow Coma Scale if they are assuming decorticate posturing in response to your painful stimulation. Sometimes patients will just kind of do it spontaneously if they're very injured. But if you elicit that response from your painful stimuli, then that's decorticate posturing, three points. And then we have decerebrate posturing, which is even more ominous. And this is called an abnormal extension. So in decerebrate posturing, the individual holds the arms and legs out straight. You may see the head and neck arched, the toes point downward, and the hands are often bent outward at the wrist, but the arms are straight by the side. So decerebrate posturing, again, very ominous. It's going to earn the individual only two points on the Glasgow Coma Scale. And if the patient has no motor response of any kind to even the most painful nail bed pressure stimulation, they receive a score of one in this area, okay? Overall, the best score that your patient can get with the Glasgow Coma Scale is a 15. If the score is 8 or less, we're going to be very, very concerned about this patient. A score of 3 essentially means there's no neurological response at all. Okay, so you've kind of got an introduction to that. You will get a ton of practice using the Glasgow Coma Scale in clinical and when you're working as a nurse. Now let's clear up something that confuses people all the time, and that's levels of consciousness. So another way to assess your patient's neurological status is to describe their level of consciousness. And this ranges from alert, awake and alert, all the way down to comatose. So let's go through it. Nurse Mo here. Did you know I have a book on Amazon? It's called Nursing School Thrive Guide, and it's a quick read with tons of great advice and tips for thriving in nursing school. You can simply search for Nursing School Thrive Guide on Amazon or use the link I've provided in the episode notes. If you're starting nursing school soon and feeling a bit overwhelmed, I got you. And the best part is it's available as a paperback, Kindle version, and an audiobook. Want to thrive in nursing school? Then check out Nursing School Thrive Guide, available on Amazon.
An alert patient is going to be awake, is going to be responsive to you and the environment. So here's an example. Your patient Bob is sitting up in bed texting with his granddaughter. When you ask him a question, he answers appropriately and he follows all your commands. So basically, Bob is doing just fine. A confused patient is not oriented to one of those key elements. Remember, we're asking them about person, place, and time. And occasionally, we'll throw in situation. I find that that's also an area of confusion. I've, you know, patients will wake up from surgery, for example, and they'll know they're in a hospital, but initially they won't remember what happened because they had surgery. They're still waking up and they'll kind of be you know, groggy and maybe saying, now, what happened? I had surgery. And it takes a little bit of reorienting. I might say, yes, you had your gallbladder removed. Remember, you came into the hospital, you were having that pain, you saw the doctor, they said you needed your gallbladder removed. And here we are, and you had your gallbladder removed, and you're doing great. So, you know, things like that. So not alert to situation. So here is an example. Your patient, Sheila, is sitting in the chair. She's having her breakfast. She follows all your commands. But when you ask her where she is, she says, I'm at my kid's school waiting for the concert to start. Okay, so Sheila doesn't know where she is. She's like that patient I had who would have bet his life savings that he was at his aunt's house and nothing I said was going to change his mind. Next is somnolent. This patient is sleepy. It's important to note that patients get sleepy as a normal physiologic response, especially at night, especially when taking sedating medications, especially if they went to the ER at one in the morning and they were up all night and now it's 10 a.m. and they haven't slept. They're going to be somnolent and that's that can be okay. Here's an example. Karen was up all night because, hey, maybe she had to go to the ED for something, and she's yawning throughout your morning assessment. She cannot wait for you to finish so she can finally get some sleep. Then we have lethargic. So this is the patient who has marked drowsiness, or maybe they are actually asleep. They can be awoken or roused without much difficulty, but as soon as you stop talking to them or disturbing them, they will go back to sleep. So here's an example of that. You've got a patient, Jesse, he had his appendix removed. He's in the recovery room. He will rouse when you call his name and rub his shoulder. When awake, he responds to you. He might respond a little slowly, but he'll answer your questions. He'll tell you his pain level. When you sit down to chart, however, right there by his bedside, he goes right back to sleep. So Jesse's lethargic and fully normal for that, right? You just had surgery. He will probably get more awake over the next few minutes. What about the patient who is obtunded? So the patient who is obtunded is difficult to rouse and is drowsy or very blunted even when awake. His verbal responses indicate he could be confused. He may just mumble. He very quickly goes back to sleep when undisturbed. So here's an example. Your patient Lou has COPD and you suspect Lou might be becoming hypercapnic. And with a very loud voice and some vigorous stimulation, Lou will rouse briefly. He mumbles at you. 
and he protests slightly when you place the BiPAP mask on him, but he doesn't really have enough energy to put up a fight. And trust me, when patients don't want to wear BiPAP because they're confused and they've got this big thing coming at their face, they can put up a bit of a fight because they just don't know what's going on and they've got this big mask coming at them. It is like the one thing that's going to make them so much better. But anyway, he doesn't even you know, uh, resist or put up a fuss when you go to place the BiPAP mask on him. He quickly falls asleep once you stop adjusting the BiPAP mask. So Lou was obtended. And then we have the stuporous patient. The stuporous patient is very difficult to rouse and requires vigorous and repeated painful stimulation. They are not very responsive to the environment at all. And as soon as any stimulation is stopped, so they could rouse a little bit, but the very instant that stimulation is stopped, they go back into that unconscious state. So an example might be your patient that took an overdose of opioids. While one coworker performs assisted ventilation, you perform a vigorous sternal rub as you wait for someone to bring you the Narcan. The patient groans, limply reaches towards your hand, but nothing more. Doesn't open their eyes, doesn't say any words. Very, very limited response. And then we have your comatose patient. This patient has no response to any stimulation. An example would be your patient, Chelsea, has suffered a traumatic brain injury. She exhibits no response to repeated painful stimulation, and her Glasgow score is a three. So she would be comatose. So those are kind of the, I guess it's kind of a a continuum, a spectrum of consciousness. Sometimes you will you will see somnolence and lethargy grouped together. So don't be thrown off if you do. Sometimes somnolent and lethargic are grouped together to that sleepy patient who will rouse, but when left undisturbed, goes back to sleep. But if they are separated out, lethargy is more tired than somnolent, okay? All right, now let's move on and we'll talk about assessing cranial nerves. Now, for a very detailed neurological assessment, you'll be assessing the cranial nerves. This comes into play when you need a very kind of thorough and pinpointed assessment of potential neurological deficits that goes beyond the patient's level of consciousness. A great example of when you would be assessing cranial nerves is when the patient has a neurological injury or who has had a neurological intervention, maybe like brain surgery, and we want to monitor the effectiveness of that intervention or monitor for complications. So going through the cranial nerves, if you find cranial nerves just really difficult to remember, I do have them in my study sesh podcast where we do some drills and a lot of quizzing on the cranial nerves. So if you've been thinking about study sesh, and this might tip you over the edge into getting that study podcast. So I'll put the link in the episode notes if that sounds like something you would find helpful. So cranial nerve one is the olfactory nerve. And a simple way to assess this is to ask the patient to smell a familiar odor. So in the hospital, you know, there's not a lot of options, but you could probably get your hands on some coffee from the nutrition room. 
and maybe a lemon. Maybe there's lemon because there's tea that the patients get. So those would be things that the patient should be able to smell and recognize. Now, some hospitals utilize essential oils. I know we have them at our hospital, really helpful for things like, uh, especially for post-operative nausea and vomiting. One of the oils that we have is a peppermint. So peppermint would be another smell or another familiar odor that a patient would probably be able to recognize without any prompting. Now, if the patient can't identify the odor or says, I don't smell any anything, this is a sign of a neurological impairment, or maybe they have COVID and they can't smell anything right now. Cranial nerve two is the optic nerve. And to test this one, you're basically testing visual acuity. Now, the technical way to do this is to have the patient read a Snellen chart if one is available. Have I ever seen a Snellen chart? in the ICU or anywhere in the hospital? No, I have not. A handheld version can be utilized. Have them hold something about 14 inches away and read it. If you don't have anything like that available, a great thing to do is ask them to read the clock. Or if you're in a room, have them read the whiteboard, you know, assuming they can read your handwriting. The tip I would give you here is to make sure that if the patient wears glasses, they're wearing their glasses. So ask them if they wear glasses before you assess their visual acuity. The next cranial nerve is number three, and that's oculomotor. And to do this, we're just going to shine our pen light and look for a pupillary reaction. You also want to ask the patient to move their eyes up, down, side to side, and diagonally. And that assesses that motor function of the eye. Bonus with this one is that it's also testing for nerve four and nerve six, so the trochlear and the abducens. So you're essentially knocking out three cranial nerves with one assessment by having them move their eyes in all of those directions. Now, if the pupils are not reactive, this could mean a couple of different things. Pinpoint non-reactive pupils are often present in opioid overdose. As that opioid wears off, reassess their pupils. Sluggish pupils, meaning they constrict slowly, can also occur with sedatives and opioids. Now, a pupil that is fixed and dilated is usually a very ominous and very late sign of neurological damage. And if you assess your patient and a fixed dilated pupil is the first thing that tells you something is wrong, unless this is your first time ever seeing the patient, like if they just showed up to the hospital, then cues were missed earlier. Okay, so Fixed, dilated, pupillary changes in that way are late signs of neurological damage. It can also be associated with nebulized ipratropium bromide, and this 100% happened to me and one of my patients. So I had a patient who had no risk factors for neurological injury. They were getting nebulized breathing treatments, and I had noticed that when the mask was on, the patient was moving around a lot and the mask was kind of cattywampus. And I didn't really think about it at the time. We just got the mask back on the way it should be. And I went on about my business. And then I was assessing the patient and one of the pupils was dilated and not responding to light. So I went to the doctor and I told um, the doctor about it. And he he thought it was probably because of this medication, but just to be safe, he said, okay, fine, go ahead and go to CT scan just to be safe. So we did go to CT scan. The patient was fine. It was completely because this medication got into their eye and caused that pupil reaction. So there you go. A little bit of detective work when you are 
wondering about neurological changes in your patient that you don't expect. And there you go. So just a little bit of a bedside story for you. Okay, now anytime, of course, if your patient has a pupil change, you want to investigate immediately. Most of the time, it's not going to be because of their breathing treatment, but I just wanted to let you know that little story. Okay, so let's move on to cranial nerve five, which is the trigeminal nerve. Now, we're going to test the sensory function of this nerve, and to do that, you can lightly touch the patient's face with something soft, like a little gauze square or a tissue in three key places, in the, at the forehead, at the jaw, and at the cheek. You also want to make sure the patient can differentiate between blunt and sharp, so you can touch in those same three areas with something blunt and something sharp, like a, like a pin. If you have pins, you might have safety pins to use for this purpose. Just be really careful that you're not actually piercing the skin. In addition, test the patient's ability to differentiate between warm and cold. You could put a few ice cubes in a glove to make something that's cold, and you can get one of those heel warmers to test something that is warm. And to test the motor function of the trigeminal nerve, you can ask the patient to clench his jaw and then open his mouth. Now, cranial nerve seven is the facial nerve. So the facial nerve has both a sensory function and a motor function. So you'll be doing two assessments with this one as well. To test the sensory function, have your patient taste something familiar, such as some sugar, if you've got some lemon available, that is really helpful. And technically, it should be on the, on the anterior section of the tongue. And then to test motor function, have the patient raise eyebrows, close eyes really tightly, and give a big smile. And you're looking for symmetry in all areas of the face. And if you thought, wow, that sounds a lot like a key component of a stroke assessment, you are absolutely right. Cranial nerve eight is the acoustic nerve. So the official test for the acoustic nerve involves a tuning fork. I can pretty much guarantee you, you're not going to have a tuning fork available at the bedside in the inpatient setting. You might have it at a clinic or someplace like that. A quick way to test the sensory function of this nerve, if you don't have a tuning fork handy, is to rub your fingers together near each ear to determine if the patient can hear that sound. Since this nerve also plays a role in equilibrium, you can perform the Romberg test. So a simple way to perform this test is have the patient stand still with their eyes open for about 30 seconds and then with their eyes closed for 30 seconds. And if they lose their balance, this is considered a positive Romberg test and could mean the acoustic nerve is not functioning optimally. Now, cranial nerve nine is the glossopharyngeal nerve. This is another one that has motor and sensory functions. So to test the motor function, assess the patient's ability to swallow. You could also assess their gag reflex. This tells us also about cranial nerve 10, which is the vagus nerve, as they are both involved in the gag reflex. Um, Testing the gag reflex on an awake patient is kind of rude. It would probably make me throw up. I don't know about you. But if the patient's sedated, unconscious, then that is when we would test their gag reflex. 
To test the sensory function of the glossopharyngeal nerve, you can place the familiar flavor on the posterior portion of the tongue. And if you were smart, you did that when you did the other one on the anterior portion because you are a master of time management. Okay, cranial nerve 10, the vagus nerve. Now that vagus nerve is sensory and motor, and we mainly test its motor function by testing the pharynx. So a great way to assess that function is to ask the patient to swallow and speak, and we also tested their gag reflex if they were sedated. If the patient has a hoarse voice when you ask them to speak, this could be a sign the nerve is impaired. Now, there could be other reasons why someone's voice is hoarse, but when you're looking at their whole neurological picture, if it makes sense that they could have neurological injury and their voice is hoarse and they're maybe not swallowing so well, cranial nerve 10 could be affected. Now, cranial nerve 11 is the accessory nerve. So this one innervates the trapezius and the sternocleidomastoid. So you're going to test this by placing your hands on the patient's shoulders and just simply ask them to shrug upward. Shrug your shoulders up. Both shoulders should move up with equal force. To test the sternocleidomastoid, just place your hand on one cheek, have them turn into that hand so you're putting a little bit of pressure, and then repeat with the other side. You want to see that they can turn their head against that resistance that you're providing by your hand. And then cranial nerve 12, hypoglossal. We made it to the end, you guys. To test the motor function of the hypoglossal nerve, you'll ask your patient to stick their tongue straight out and then ask them to move it side to side. If the tongue deviates to one side, like when you say stick out your tongue and it just sticks out to the side and it doesn't go anywhere else, this is a sign of neurological injury. Okay, whew, we did it. We got through the cranial nerves. Again, if you want to go through some drills and some pod quizzes and really dial these in, then check out my Study on the Go podcast study sesh, which I'll link to in the episode notes. Okay, now we're going to talk about a general neurological assessment. Maybe we don't have to dive into cranial nerves, but we want a general neurological assessment of our patient. When we're assessing our patient for any signs of neurological impairment, think about you're just kind of starting from that 30,000 foot view, and then you're going to zero in when you see areas that could possibly be impaired. So this usually doesn't start with assessing, you know, every single cranial nerve like I just talked about, but you will be doing some key assessments that can give you an idea if your patient is deteriorating or improving neurologically. And then if you see a change in one area, then you dive deeper down into that area. So the key components of a general neurological assessment are assessing level of consciousness, and you will often use the Glasgow Coma Scale for this. You already know how to do that, so great job. You can ask the patient to raise their eyebrows and smile. Now, here's my tip for this. When you are asking the patient to smile, you want that big smile. So say, smile and show me your teeth because you want that smile to be just as big as possible so that you can assess for facial symmetry and any signs of facial droop. You'll be taking a pin light, shining it into the patient's pupils to assess for equal pupil size, equal reaction. Note again that changes in the pupils are a later sign of neurological injury. You'll test upper extremity strength by having the patient squeeze your hands and push-pull against resistance. 
You can also have them hold their arms up against gravity for a count of 10, which is what we do in that NIH stroke scale. And you're looking for equal and normal strength on both sides. You'll test lower extremity strength by assessing dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. For plantar flexion, I tell patients, step on the gas. So they're sitting in bed or lying in bed. I put my hands on the soles of their feet and say, push towards my hands, step on the gas. And they they get that, right? They get it, step on the gas. And then for dorsiflexion, sometimes it's harder for patients to know what you're talking about when you say, pull your toes up. They think you want them to lift their feet off the bed. So I generally say, pull your toes towards your face or pull your toes towards your knees. And then they pull their feet the other way. Another test is to have them hold each leg one at a time up off the bed for a count of five. This is what we do with the NIH stroke scale. You'll make note of weakness or inability to perform any of these movements. You can also test for pronator drift by asking the patient to hold their arms out in front with the palms upward and then close their eyes. If one arm pronates and drifts downward, so pronates means you're starting out with a palm up, it's going to pronate and turn down, and the arm drifts down with that, this is a poor neurological sign and is often used in part of that fast stroke assessment. Assess the patient's speech. Slurred speech, difficulty understanding speech, inappropriate words, or difficulty spanking are all signs of neurological injury or impairment. You also want to assess for sensation, numbness, and tingling. So, for example, while I'm doing the dorsiflexion plantar flexion, first I'll ask the patient, which foot am I touching? And I'll do a quick little assessment that way. Or do you have any numbness and tingling in your hands or feet? Actually, you want to ask both. You want to ask if they can feel and if they have numbness or tingling. And then a great follow-up question if they say yes is to say, do you always have that? Because it would be really embarrassing to let the doctor know that Bob's got numbness and tingling in his feet to have the doctor say, well, yeah, he's had diabetes for 42 years and he's got terrible peripheral neuropathy. Oh, so that's his baseline. Okay, so you always want to know the patient's baseline with that kind of assessment and any neurological assessment. So if you see any abnormalities and are not part of the patient's baseline, you want to dive deeper into those specific areas. Dive deeper into those specific cranial nerves and, of course, let the MD know. Okay, let's talk now about the NIH stroke scale a little bit because you will be seeing it most likely in your facilities and I want you to be a bit aware of it. So if your facility takes care of stroke patients, you will most likely be using this NIH stroke scale, which you'll see as NIHSS, and we use this to assess the severity of the stroke symptoms. The exam covers 15 different assessments that provide some really valuable information about the severity of the stroke and the effect of the stroke. And then once treatment is given, how well the patient is responding to that treatment and are their stroke symptoms improving. And it's really cool to see someone score better and better and better on the NIH. A very standard use of that stroke scale is to give that assessment. So the patient comes in with their stroke symptoms and they're in the ER and they get an NIH stroke scale assessment done like as their baseline. And then if they qualify for TPA, they get the TPA and then we do the NIH 
over and over again afterwards to see if the patient's getting better, which hopefully they do, or if they are deteriorating. So a very typical protocol would be having you administer that NIH exam every 15 minutes, and I believe that's for an hour or two. So that's a lot of assessments and a lot of charting, and you're very busy for that amount of time. So you do the NIH every 15 minutes for that bit of time, and then every 30 minutes for another couple of hours, I think. Don't quote me on any of this. It could change by facility. And then hourly, and I believe the total amount of time is 24 hours. So this involves ICU level care because you're doing an assessment every hour at the most, that's really intense. It also leads to pretty significant sleep deprivation on the part of the patient who is most likely already exhausted from everything that they have been through. So the NIH stroke scale tool includes assessments such as asking the patient to state their age and the month. So what do you think that's asking? Are they oriented? Are they confused, right? You also want to ask the patient to follow two very simple commands. And the ones that are on the official assessment are make a fist and close your eyes tightly. Ask the patient to name some common items and there's pictures and you show them the pictures and they name the the objects and they're things like a feather, a glove and a key and there's a few others. You also want to ask the patient to read some words and phrases if they can read. If they can't read, you can ask them to repeat them. If they can't see because they have visual acuity issues, you would ask them to repeat the keywords and phrases and you're looking for the, you know, slurring, um, inability to speak clearly. You also assess sensation and movement bilaterally. And again, there's a bunch of other things. Those are some of the key assessments. If you want to see more details about this very in-depth test, I will put a link to a resource in the episode notes so that you can go and check it out. All right, now I want to share with you some neurological assessment best practices before I let you go today. Actually, I have two more key things I want to share with you. Neurological assessment best practices and just a little bit of a talk about who might be at risk for a neurostatus change. So when we're looking at neuroassessment best practices, Again, this can be really challenging for a variety of reasons. Not only are there so many factors that come into play, but changes can be quite subtle. The more neurological assessments that you conduct, the better you will get at picking up on abnormalities and changes. If you are ever concerned about a patient's neurological status, call the MD. You would much, much rather embarrass yourself, annoy that person, whatever then risk not speaking up for your patient, okay? So if you're ever in doubt, you call someone. Now, here are some key tips for performing a neurological assessment. One of the most important things is to do your neuroassessments with the nurse who is giving you report if you're not like the very first nurse to see this patient. You wanna make sure that the things they saw earlier are the things you are seeing now. If there's a change in condition, this is a fantastic time to catch that change. You really want to avoid having to call the nurse in 15 minutes or so and say, hey, did Joe's tongue deviate to the side when you assessed him earlier? Because if you had done your assessment together, you would know the answer to that question and you would know if this was a new finding or 
an expected finding because that's how he came in and we're actually hoping that it improves. If you're conducting assessments on your patient in the middle of the night, and you will be, especially if you're doing the NIH for that 24-hour period, give your patient a moment to wake up before you dive in. You don't want them to score lower than they should because they're groggy and they're going to be tired. You're waking them up constantly for that 24-hour period. Their brain is injured. They're just going through so much. So Give them a moment to wake up so that they can perform at their absolute best. You also want to make sure you're not leading the patient to the right answer. So, for example, instead of saying, am I touching your right foot? Or instead of saying, let me know when I touch your right foot, I instead will say, which foot am I touching? Or I will say, I'm going to touch one of your feet. You let me know which foot I'm touching when I touch it. And then that way they are not clued in when I'm going to be touching or where. So they have to really have that sensation present. You want to sneak your basic, basic neuro assessments in wherever you can and as much as you can. There's so much information that you can obtain about a patient's neurological status as you are interacting with them in other ways. And a lot of times, especially if you're not highly suspicious that your patient will have a neurological change, this could be the first clue that you get that something might be wrong with your patient. So I will often just generally assess my patients in this very general sense when I'm not suspecting them to be a high risk for neurological injury, but I want to know their neurological status. So for example, when you walk into the room, is the patient responsive to you? Do they look up to you? Do they speak to you? Are they alert? Level of consciousness is usually that very first thing that I take note of when I approach a patient. Another thing you can do is watch them when they eat or drink. If they show no signs of swallowing difficulty, such as coughing, or they try to take a drink of water and the water flows right back out of their mouth, guess what? You've already assessed one of the cranial nerves, okay? So great job, you. Another example is when you ask your patient, where are you right now? Or do you know where you are? Tell me where you are right now. Their response is, of course, going to tell you if they are oriented to place, but you can also assess for difficulty speaking, for hoarseness of their voice, any slurring of their words. When you're looking for an IV site and you want to get those veins really pumped up and you ask the patient to make a fist for you, guess what? You're assessing their ability to follow commands. And when you get your patient up to walk or go to the bathroom, observe how they walk, observe their gait. If they're wobbly, of course, it could be because they're taking a medication that makes them a little bit loopy, or it could be a problem with balance. You would want to assess this further. All right, another key guideline for best practice with neurological assessment if you're performing neurological assessments for the purpose of assessing a known or a suspected neurological injury, 
You want to use a systematic step-by-step approach to ensure that you don't miss anything. You don't want anything to slip through the cracks. So develop a routine and stick to your routine. And it is absolutely okay to use a cheat sheet, a reference list, something like that. There's no shame in your game. Now, for an accurate neurological assessment of critically ill patients, you want to give the patient what is called a sedation holiday. So let's say you've got a critically ill patient on a ventilator who's getting sedation. You'll hear the nurses and the physicians talk about a sedation holiday. This is a period of time without any sedating medications. This gives that patient the opportunity to essentially kind of wake up so that they can have their best possible chance of getting the best possible neurological assessment. Now, if your patient is intubated and they're, you know, they're on a ventilator and they're sedated and they get their sedation holiday and they don't tolerate that and they start fighting the vent or desaturating or becoming unstable, well, that's when you have to let the MD know this patient did not tolerate his sedation holiday and determine if there are other things, other medications that can be used that aren't so sedating. So just make sure that whoever needs to know knows that you weren't able to provide a sedation holiday and why and, and then figure out what the plan is moving forward. Now, if your patient is intubated, notice if they gag or if they cough when you are performing that endotracheal tube suctioning. If they're not, then this could be a sign that they don't have a gag reflex. And that can be due to very deep sedation. It can be due to paralytic drugs, obviously, if they're getting those, or it can be because of neurological injury. And if you're not sure you're interpreting something correctly, then get more eyes on the patient. Have a coworker or the charge nurse also assess the patient. If the MD is there, let's say whenever the neurologist comes by to do their assessment, I am all, you better believe, I drop what I'm doing and I want to be there at the bedside. I want to observe the patient's response to whatever the neurologist is doing and make sure that we are all on the same page with the patient's neurological response. And you always, always want to let the MD know about any unexpected findings. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about who might be at risk for a neurostatus change. So kind of knowing which of your patients might be at a higher risk for a change in their neurological status really amps up your awareness that that could happen and helps you catch abnormalities early. So yes, you're assessing every patient in a general sense for their neurological status, But the patients that are at risk for actual acute injury, actual acute changes are going to be the ones that get more thorough assessments, right? That only makes sense. That's part of your focused assessment. So what kind of patients might be at higher risk? So here are a few examples. Please note, this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but I'm telling you these examples so that you can kind of start critically thinking about your patients and recognizing which ones that you're taking care of in clinical, on an exam, in sim lab, at work, might be at higher risk for neurostatus change. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. Okay, so any patient with a current neurological injury or neurological condition is going to be at higher risk for a change. That makes sense, right? Now, the patient who is at highest risk for deterioration 
is going to be that patient who already has some kind of impairment, such as they've had an ischemic stroke, they've had a hemorrhagic stroke, they have a subdural hematoma, they had a blunt force trauma. Like these are the reasons why they're in the hospital. They have encephalopathy. You will monitor these patients very, very closely for changes, both positive and negative, because patients sometimes get better and they sometimes get worse and they sometimes stay the same. So in the ICU where I worked for many, many years, when we had a patient on very close neurological status, you know, observation for changes in their neurological status, those assessments could be as often as every 15 minutes. You know, like I said earlier, when the patient gets the TPA, then it's every 15 minutes, right? It's It was most likely every hour or every two hours. So generally what would happen would be the MD would order hourly neuro checks. And then if the patient looked to be stabilizing, no changes were being noted or improvements were being noted, then they would spread those out every two hours or every four hours. And then slowly the assessments would get less and less frequent as the patient's condition either stabilized or improved. Another high risk for neurostatus change patient would be anyone who's had neurological surgery. This person's going to require regular neuro checks. It's probably going to be every hour, maybe more often right after surgery, but then every hour. This includes things like a craniotomy or placing a shunt, removing a mass, repairing an AVM, implanting what are those deep brain stimulators, any spinal surgeries, all those kinds of things are going to require regular neuro checks, okay? And then your patient who's had a carotid endarterectomy is going to undergo regular neuro assessments as well. So a carotid endarterectomy is a procedure that's going to remove plaque from the carotid arteries. And this is done to prevent stroke. But in some cases, and I, I don't know exactly what the risk is, I believe it's about 2% from one study I read. Again, one study is not the end-all be-all, but just to give you a little bit of frame of reference, there is a risk for this procedure to cause stroke. So we have to monitor these patients very, very carefully. And what happens is that bits of plaque or a blood clot can become dislodged from this procedure, causing an ischemic stroke. So the patients who are having a carotid endarterectomy are probably going to be observed in the ICU for that first, you know, night, day after surgery in that immediate post-op period. Patients with atrial fibrillation are going to be at higher risk for stroke, especially if that AFib is untreated. This is because a thrombus can form in the heart that is ejected into systemic circulation and the cerebral vasculature. A patient with increased ICP intracranial pressure can have significant neurological changes. If you're interested in learning more about intracranial pressure, then go way back into the archives back when I had a bad microphone and was just learning how to be a podcaster. Go back to episode five and check that out. 
Another high-risk patient for neurostatus change is a patient with advanced liver disease. These patients can get hepatic encephalopathy, which can cause some pretty significant neurological changes. The good news about hepatic encephalopathy is that with treatment, as we treat those elevated ammonia levels, you do get to see your patient typically improve. I always like seeing people get better. Sodium imbalances, especially low-sodium hyponatremia, can cause some pretty significant neurochanges in your patient. Some common conditions that can lead to hyponatremia are water intoxication, which is often due to an underlying psychological disorder, renal disease, significant diarrhea and vomiting, congestive heart failure, pituitary tumors, and SIADH. So those can all contribute to being hyponatremic. Medications can also contribute to hyponatremia. Some common ones are diuretics. That was an easy one. SSRIs, antipsychotics, and even NSAIDs. It's important to note that MDMA, the party drug ecstasy, can cause hyponatremia as well. All right, another high risk for neurochanges patient is your patient with elevated blood pressure, especially if they have low platelets. So you better believe I took care of a lot of patients in the ICU with like five platelets, like 5,000 platelets, like really low platelet counts. And you better believe I watched their blood pressure super closely until we got that platelet count up because if you combine really high blood pressure with not much clotting ability, you're looking at a high risk for hemorrhagic stroke. So you're going to pay very close attention to that patient's blood pressure and their neurological status. Hypoglycemia can cause altered and depressed neurological function, depending, of course, on the severity of the hypoglycemia. Now, some typical scenarios that can lead to hypoglycemia I saw it a lot with patients with really severe liver disease and then would see it with patients who were taking hypoglycemic agents. Obviously, hypoglycemia is always a risk or a concern when the patient's taking insulin, taking metformin, things like that. A patient with an infection is at risk for neurological changes, namely their level of consciousness and their orientation. One of the key signs of urinary tract infection FYI, in the elderly is acute confusion. And I have seen this play out more than once. And then patients with pH imbalances will often show decreased level of consciousness. Two pretty common examples are patients with COPD, which would lead to respiratory acidosis, and end-stage renal disease, metabolic acidosis. So if you've got a patient with COPD or who was supposed to get dialysis and they didn't for some reason and now you can't wake them up, guess what? Check an ABG. Very likely their pH is out of balance. So I hope this overview of a very complex topic helps you feel a little more confident as you head to the bedside. The key takeaways from this are get a baseline neuroassessment whenever you can. Do a neuroassessment with the nurse you are receiving the patient from. And again, when you hand the patient's care off to someone else, never, ever be afraid to ask for a second opinion or a second set of eyeballs. 
If you see something abnormal, go back and look at the chart. Sometimes patients have long-standing neurological deficits that don't get relayed to you in report. It's not ideal, but yes, it happens. So go and look at the chart and see, oh, she had a stroke eight years ago, and she has hemiparesis on the left side. Okay, so that's normal for her. So go back and look at the chart. And always, always call the MD anytime there are changes or you are concerned about your patient. So I hope to see you back here again. I've got a great episode for you. If you're interested at all in becoming a nurse practitioner, I am doing an interview with a nurse practitioner who talks about what that pathway looks like and what the career opportunities for a nurse practitioner are. So I will see you back here next week for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.